You're listening to Plenary Session. This week on Plenary Session, you're in for a treat. I was walking down the hall with Antonius Hazim, medical student, and he told me something that really made my day, and I asked him to share it with a broad audience on Plenary Session, and he was kind enough to do so. Next, we have an interview with Dr. Joshua Niforatos. He is a graduating student in the Cleveland Clinic Lerner College of Medicine, and he has done a number of interesting papers in conflict of interest, which he will talk about. And next week, we'll be back with more plenary session, and I will discuss some articles that have been making the news. So stay tuned. But first, a plug. If you like this episode and you like this podcast, Go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. Write a review if you have the time. If you want to follow us on Twitter, we're at plenary underscore session. And if you really want to support this podcast, now there's a new option. You can go to patreon.com and you can back us. Patreon.com forward slash plenary session. You can back us at any level that uh, you choose. And supporters will get access to links and articles that we discuss on this podcast, as well as slides for presentations. So go to Patreon we could use your support. I'm back in plenary session HQ with Dr. Antonio Hazim. Antonio, you're a graduating fourth year medical student. That's correct. Yeah, that's correct. And thanks for taking a minute out of your day to come here on the podcast. Oh, for sure. Always. Um, I guess I should tell listeners a little bit um, about uh, how we know each other. We've worked together on some projects before. Uh, We published a paper uh, where we pull the basket trials, and we published that in the European Journal of Cancer. Is that not? Is that is that right? Yeah, that's correct. I think we that was up in back in September. Back in September. Yeah. And um, and I think it was a quite an interesting project. Um, uh, well, of course, I have to admit that uh, you did all the work. Really, <laughs> I just yeah, gave you some. Well, I had uh, excellent guidance. Uh, excellent right? guidance. Yeah, yeah, just some some light directions. Uh, just like giving somebody a map and then having them do all the driving. Uh, I provided the map, uh, but uh, you did all the driving. Um, and what we did was we pooled um, a number of basket studies and looked at sort of the response rate of these sort of tumor agnostic drugs in different tissues. Um, and uh, what did you take away from that? Yeah, I thought it was interesting that the overall response rate of patients enrolled in the basket studies, I think it was about 1,200 or so patients, patients pooled out of mm-hmm. like eight, eight basket studies. I think the overall response rate is about like 25%. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think we found that the overall, the majority of patients who did respond were the most more uncommon type of, of cancers mm-hmm. and not the generally the top five. Mm-hmm. Right? And I think that's the that was what I thought would be the interesting takeaway, which was that you know even though this is an avenue of research that is extremely promising and generating a lot of interest, when you just step back and look at the entire published literature, which is you know not everything, but it's what's been published, um, you find a response rate that is not that different than kind of the response rates you had seen in different classes over time. But let's let's talk about what we were talking about in the hallway, yeah. which is why I pulled you in here and said, do you want to record that? Um, you were telling me something very interesting. You were saying that there are moments in your medical training, and now you're kind of wrapping up, um, that were kind of tough for you, um, that you know the hours were long and the days were grueling, and, and you kind of wondered, you know, why did you choose to do this? And then you talked a little bit about what were the sorts of things you did that reaffirmed your 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 faith in medicine. And, and so, can you tell us about that? Yeah, I think there. You know, I think there's a, a point in everyone's career, just in medical school in general, where we just feel, you know, just really burnt out, or you know, just really really tired of what we're doing. Mm-hmm. I think you know, though that be, you know, surgery rotation, the long hours, or you know, 
grindy way for depth studying. Mm-hmm. Um, and we kind of just forget why we're here. Mm-hmm. And when I felt that way, there were a few things that I did to kind of reaffirm my decision about why I chose medicine. I think one of those is going back to read my personal statement. That was always a reminder, why did I choose medicine? Why am I here? And I think the second thing that I did is I'd go back and I'd reread the Geneva Oath. It was uh, during the one of my preceptor experiences, I was working with an ER doctor down at Legacy, and he actually did something really interesting that each, each Monday of each week, he would read the Geneva Oath right before he started a shift. And why did he do that? What I took away was that he wanted to reaffirm himself that though it can be difficult to be an ER physician, you take a lot of criticism from other attendings, you know, the hours can be rough, you can be really busy. But every time he reread the Geneva Oath, I reminded him, why am I here? Why am I working today? What's my goal as a physician? And I think when I found myself, you know, really struggling or I was really burnt out or really tired, I'd reread the Geneva Oath just to reaffirm myself. Why am I here? Why am I trying to pursue a career in medicine? And also to show myself that this is what I want, this is what I dream, and this is what it means to be a physician. And that to me, it's not a career. I don't look at a doctor as being a, a career, but as a lifestyle. And that's something that I hold really, really high and I'm thankful for. And I think knowing that I took an oath and I could hold this to a really high standard and re- reaffirming that, it's awesome. And i really thankful for that. So. And by, by lifestyle, you mean like it, it becomes a part of your identity. It's, it's who you are. It's your, your life is devoted to it. Yeah, I, I, 100%. It's, it's, it's a special thing that you could take an oath to your profession. And I think as people get lost in the long hours of work or they're struggling with their career, they kind of lose that. They lose what it means to actually be, be a physician. And they, it's sad to see that, you know, as medical students, we take this oath as our right before we start school, then we take it again right when we finish school. But we never actually take the time to sit down to actually break down what the oath even means. And in a way, I feel like that's it's kind of sad in a way. Hmm. Let me just tell listeners a little bit about what is in the World Medical Association Declaration of Geneva. Yeah. As a member of the medical profession, I solemnly pledge to dedicate my life to the service of humanity. The health and well-being of my patient will be my first consideration. I will respect the autonomy and dignity of my patient. I will maintain the utmost respect for human life. I will not permit considerations of age, disease, disability, creed, ethnic order, gender, nationality, political affiliation, race, sexual orientation, social standing, or any other factor to intervene between my duty and my patient. I will respect the secrets that are confided in me even after the patient has died. I will practice my profession with conscience and dignity and in accordance with good medical practice. I will foster the honor and noble traditions of the medical profession. I will give to my teachers, colleagues, and students the respect and gratitude that is their due. I will share my medical knowledge for the benefit of the patient and the advancement of healthcare. I will attend to my own health, well-being, and abilities in order to provide the highest standard. I will not use my medical knowledge to violate human rights and civil liberties, even under threat. I make these promises solemnly, freely, and upon my honor. That's what you read. That's exactly what I read. And to me, every time I read those lines, it's, it's something special. And I really try to hold that to a high standard. And even if you break a line down, let's say um, I'll treat my colleagues like my brothers and sisters. And honestly, that's why I feel that way. Like my colleagues are, I don't see them as competition or anything. I see them as my friends, my brothers and sisters, that we're all striving towards the same goal of improving patient lives. 
And it's sad to see that sometimes we, we, we forget that and we kind of abuse medicine and that we forget that we actually are supposed to be holding medicine to this high standard. Thank you, Antonio, for coming on the podcast and, and telling listeners about this. And I think uh, for those of us who work in medical schools, um, you know, it's, it's working with students like you. Uh, and when you hear things like this in the hallway, um, it's these sorts of things that reaffirm um, my, uh, my confidence in the next generation. And so thank you. Thank you for coming on. Uh, thank you, Dr. Prasad. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. So really hope to see a revival in the Geneva Health. So mm, thank you. I'm back here in Plenary Session HQ with Dr. Joshua Niferatos. Dr. Niferatos is uh, not quite yet a doctor, is that right? You earn it in just a couple more months, is that fair to say? A couple months only. But um, many on Twitter will know you by your Twitter handle, which is? I just changed it. It is now Reverend of Doubt. <laughs> Reverend of Doubt, I see. Well, it's good. I, I'm a big believer in switching it up every once in a while. Keep <laughs> people on their toes. Who knows? News companies may even do a story about it someday. <laughs> well, or fly-by-night publications. But um, it's a pleasure to have you here on the plenary session. Good to see you. Thanks for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. It's the first time we've ever spoken. Um, no, we spoke on the phone once a while back, did we not? Thank yes, you. we did, yeah. Second time we've spoken then, but it's a but it's the first time to to have you here on the plenary session stage, and it's a pleasure to have you. And I have a lot to talk about, but first I awesome. wanted to tell listeners a little bit about your background. You're originally from the suburbs of Chicago. Chicago, as I like to say, is the greatest city in the world eight months a year. Uh, <laughs> it's just those other four months that make you wonder, but it's the greatest city in the world those eight. Uh, then you did your undergraduate degree at the University of New Mexico where you studied both anthropology as well as biology, uh, biology yep. and chemistry. Yep. You went on to do a master's in theology at the Boston University. And then you went to medical school where you are a student at the Cleveland Clinic Lerner College of Medicine. And you have developed an interest in emergency medicine during your time there. And you are soon to be a PGY1 EM resident. Is that fair to say? From your mouth to God's ear. <laughs> yes, I, but I know it'll happen. Um, so uh, I think, um, and listeners should also know that one of your passions is, would you say epidemiology, statistics, uh, trial, trial not trial design, but um, study design and, uh, and causal inference? Absolutely. I think that, you know, it's, I think it makes medicine more exciting, um, to be honest, to understand where the data comes from, um, how it was analyzed and... Um, you know, I've kind of become almost nihilistic after following you for a little bit and reading all the <laughs> literature on how much of this is reversed. Um, so, well, uh, I think I think the phrase we're we're both looking for is how the sausage is made. And it, yeah. once once you see how the sausage is made, you 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 often reconsider the sausage. Um, but um, you know, I, I thank you for pointing out our work on reversal. But I think it's more than that. It's it's the work on reproducibility. It's people who are talking about the reversal of longstanding medical practice or contradicted medical practices like uh, Yonides, uh, uh, myself, Adam Sifu, and others. Um, and I think it's work like by Brian Nozick and colleagues. Uh, for instance, uh, many analysts, uh, same data set. Uh, that paper about um, referees tending red cards to uh, players and whether or not there was a bias for um, more red cards given to those with darker skin tone. Um, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. This was a paper that appeared in Psychological Sciences where 
They give the exact same data set to 22 teams, and they ask them to analyze one research question. They even had a couple of periods of peer review and feedback um, that were given team to team, and they show that despite these conditions, there is still um, a significant variation. About a third of studies did not reach statistical significance, and about a third mm. did, and the odds ratio fell anywhere from 0.89 to like 3. Um, in terms of was there a bias against darker-skinned soccer players in terms of receiving more red cards. So, you know, that's an example of, as you put it, um, you know, how the data is analyzed and how those analytic choices have tremendous uh, value. Yeah, I mean, just talking about that odds ratio you just mentioned, um, I think you had said it once in your podcast when you were talking about neonatal ECMO having, like, one of the greatest odds ratio in the Cochrane's (laughs) database, and I was... I read that paper um, by Ioannidis, yeah. and uh, they looked at 80,000 yep. dichotomous variables, yep. and the results are very sobering on how many of them actually had an odds ratio above three or so. Right. The very large treatment effects paper with the Tiago yep. Pereira and colleagues. Yeah. Um, yep. The reason I like that so much is that, uh, you know, you listen to people talk about their practices. And people talk as if we're like in the parachute business. I got a parachute. You got a parachute. He's got a parachute. And then you look at this sober empirical assessment that was, you know, mined with Python. And you see that there's just one practice with a very large treatment effect on a on an important dichotomous endpoint of mortality. And that's ECMO for neonates. And it is, it is very sobering that most of what we do is modest to marginal effect size. We shouldn't apologize for that because, you know, in the in the arc of human history, at last we live in a time where we have modest to marginal effect size. Um, you know, it's better than no effect at all or like trepanation. Um, but uh, it still shows a long way for a long way to go and, and why we still need randomized trials, I think. But that knowledge is dangerous for trainees when they're getting pimped. Uh, as, I, as I found out when I went back onto the warts after my research here, because you'll get pimped on, you know, why do we do X, Y or Z? And you happen to have read up on it, you know, before you round it. And they'll say this is the reason why you do that. And as a medical student, sometime a little nerve wracking to go, really? Is it? <laughs> is that the reason why we did it? I, um, yeah, I agree. I had a few moments where, you know, I, I tried to push back a little bit. But I think as a student, one learns very quickly that there is a very narrow window with which you can operate in terms of how much to push. You can push... Oh, ever so lightly, but then you stop pushing and say, okay, well, okay, okay. Absolutely. I've, I've, I found that out both on the wards and on social media. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, oh, I've, yeah, I think I've seen some, uh, a a vicious, some snipes on social media when, um, when people were pushing on some issues pretty hard. Uh, I think, I think one of the most like outrageous ones was somebody, uh, you know, like literally threatening to end someone's career. I thought, which I thought was, Oh, that was a whole, yeah, that was a whole thing. I was two emergency doctors and one thought the other one was a resident, but they were both attendings and a bunch of people screenshot those comments. And, uh, apparently according to the New Jersey news, he has since lost his position at Rutgers. Oh, I didn't know it went that bad. Oh boy. Whew. Social media has, uh. Real world implications, it seems. Hmm. It does. Well, I wanted to ask you about many things, but first, I'm wondering, um, why did you choose emergency medicine? What is it about emergency medicine that drew in, um, you know, such a smart, uh, talented person? What what got what got what what won you over? I appreciate that. Um, so I think actually, 
I'm really glad that our school requires a research year mm. um, between the third year and the fourth year of medical school where we have to do a master's level research project and ideally do your own biostatistics, study design, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And going, finishing third year and going into research year, I actually wanted to do internal medicine or psychiatry or co- apply both to um, internal medicine and psychiatry, those combined programs. Mm-hmm. And it really wasn't until six months into research year in January, right before you needed to submit your request for acting internships, that I decided on emergency medicine. And so I had actually been doing my research year in the emergency department. Mm -hmm. Um, The goal wasn't to be an emergency physician at the time, but I was was starting an HIV syphilis screening program Mm -hmm. um, in the emergency department at University Hospital's Cleveland Medical Center in our low acuity rooms so anyone that was coming with signs or symptoms um of a sexual sexually transmitted infection or any genital urinary complaints to make sure they got hiv and syphilis screening and you know there's this whole movement now in emergency medicine to try to do like public health interventions in the ed such as hiv um, hepatitis c or starting medication assisted treatments such as buprenorphine for opiate use disorder mm-hmm. and so it was really just more interested in like public health interventions which is the reason why i wanted to do it and I just had the most amazing mentors in the emergency department there and was spending like 40 to 50 hours a week screening patients. I had my own computer that would be in there and it was a beautiful ED. And I realized that the best of psychiatry uh, and the best of internal medicine, at least for me, were in emergency medicine. So mm-hmm. I got the acutely psychotic patients and agitated patients and you know ones that were having um, panic attacks. And then for internal medicine, you get the acute exacerbations of heart failure, um, or, you know, we have a really big cancer center at Seidman Cancer Center. There is so a lot of, you know, tumor lysis syndrome or cord compression and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And, you know, the ma- medical management of those patients, uh, the diversity, the quick pace of it, the shift work that, at least from what I've seen from my mentors, have allowed them to pursue other interests within emergency medicine or mm-hmm. interests outside of emergency seven. Mm-hmm. Emergency medicine was very appealing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think... Um... I agree with you. I mean, I think that to me, the thing I, I I enjoyed working, you know, even as internal medicine residents, we have to do many, not many, but maybe three months, I think, in the ED or something like that, two, three months. Um, I enjoyed those months. I thought they were quite interesting. One of the things that I think is the absolute best about the emergency department is that you are often the person who has to make the diagnosis um, or at least a preliminary idea of what's going on with very little information in a very short period of time without any cheat sheet, without the opinion or um, potentially biasing thoughts of another doctor having already made an assessment. You're making that first assessment and you want to be good at that. And it's an art. It's an art and a science. And you, you continue to strive at that. And you probably um, it probably takes a long, long time before you feel comfortable at it. And it takes a lot and it's even longer to become a very very good at it it's yeah it's exciting you know most patients are undifferentiated when they come in and you know it's funny because being on the wards usually ER doctors are kind of crapped on by the consulting teams just Mm -hmm. because no one wants to do a consult and you know they'll you know make jokes if it's like neurology like oh someone's eyebrow isn't going up so they call the stroke or something like that (laughs) but you know you really do realize just having now worked a lot down in the emergency department that, you know, for every one consult or one admission, you know, there's like 10 discharges, mm-hmm. you know, of some like high risk patients. Um, and so, and it was also 
at least in my experience on rotations in Cleveland, it was also one of the most evidence-based rotations that I had. Um, emergency medicine, where a lot of it was using clinical decision roles, you know, looking at likelihood ratios of physical exam findings and stuff like that. So that really appealed to my interest in evidence-based um, medicine. And then over my research year, being on Twitter a lot um, while screening patients and, you know, following the free open access medical education movement, mm -hmm. I feel like, you know, it could just be the bias of who I follow, but emergency medicine seems to be very active on Twitter um, regarding evidence-based medicine. And that was kind of the kind of community that I felt like uh, had similar people. <laughs> I, 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 um, totally, I totally agree. And I, I think that I haven't quantified it empirically, and I wonder if it's been done, but anecdotally, it's my impression that emergency medicine has been an early adopter of social media and perhaps one of the most vigorous online communities on social media in contrast with some other fields. Is that fair to say? Or is there empirical data on the question? I'm not sure there's empirical data. There was a couple of studies a couple of years ago that looked at um, the increase in blogs and podcasts in emergency medicine. And I think the last one was like 2004, 2015, at least in my literature review. And there was something like 160 blogs and podcasts. And that was in 2014. Um, and I just know now it's way more than that. And, you know, that's in the emergency medicine residency programs I interviewed at, you know, they actually really emphasize, you know, FOMED, Free Open Access Medical Education. Right. They have blogs. Residents are required to post a blog post and stuff like that on some medically related topic. They have electives and podcasting that you can do and stuff like that. So I would say it's definitely an early adopter um, of social media and definitely integrating that into the curriculum. And I think maybe it is in part that shift work structure that allows academic emergency medicine physicians some really you know, truly protected time um, in which they can explore some of these other interests and try to craft educational components to their work. That's what it seems like, yeah. Yeah. Now, I wanted to ask you about an issue that you and I both think about a fair bit, um, which is conflict of interest. And I wanted to ask you, um, you know, I know when I think about you, I think to myself, there is somebody out, you know, that you're somebody with a very, very strong non-financial conflict of interest. You've got one of those intellectual conflict of interest. You're out there and you care about the truth and you're pursuing it doggedly, and you probably want fame, and perhaps the greatest fame you aspire for, you probably want, you know, um, Obama fame. Uh, so what do you think? Um, you do study conflict of interest, and is that not an, a non-financial conflict of interest you, that you have? Um, yeah, I do study, I do study yeah. conflicts of interest. I have a couple of publications on it, research papers, and we recently had a few more that were recently accepted, too. Um, you know, I think one, I think it's fun using the open payments database yeah. um, to answer questions. I feel like if you're a trainee and you're interested in biostatistics and going through Excel spreadsheets and stuff like that, it's actually a fairly, fairly user-friendly um, document that yeah. um, CMS has put out. But, you know, in terms of if there's any conflict, I guess I've gotten an extra couple li a couple lines on my CV. Um, <laughs> right. Hasn't been a whole page yet from conflicts of interest research. Uh -huh. um, but conflicts of interest and, you know, this whole non-financial conflicts of interest is interesting because, at least for me, the whole point of reporting financial conflicts of interest is not for the person who has it to tell us if they're conflicted or not, but it's for anyone who's receiving care from that person to make an informed decision about mm -hmm. their conflicts. Mm -hmm. 
and so I think, you know, I think it's introducing this non-financial conflicts of interest at this time um, in medical history, I think is probably not the most appropriate time to do that, mm -hmm. um, to focus on that. Uh, not to mention that if you're writing about it in New York Times and other journals, um, there's a, quite a bit of fame that one can get from doing that. Oh, so the, that might the, be a non-financial The, the, the meta-non-financial conflict is that their non-financial conflict is a strong feeling and fame from non-financial conflict, right? Yeah. It's, 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 well, it's, a, it's a meta kind of thing. Well, let's be honest. More people are going to read the New York Times um, papers than they are the journal articles. So. <laughs> right. That's, uh, that's a, certainly a fair statement. But, um, you know, I tease about this topic, but of course I think... You know, I, I think you put it well that, you know, now is not the time to be picking on it in the sense that, you know, I, I think of 2018 and financial conflict of interest the way I think about tobacco use in 1960. Um, you have something that's a proven, uh, modifiable, linked carcinogen or linked to bias. Um, there is potentially a solution. There's a large group of people who are largely disinterested in tackling the problem. And as long as you want to keep talking about all these other biases out there, it's a way to kind of not take action on the one thing you probably could easily take action on if you if you so chose. Absolutely. And, you know, of all the things I've read on non-financial conflicts of interest, there's been few that have not had at least at some point between 2013 and 2018 over five thousand dollars in general payments <laughs> right. um, the, not related right. to food and beverage. So, right. you know, I think there's also some psychological analysis that could probably go into why one writes about anything. Right. Um, but then I would be going into my seminary training. So I say, right. Well, we don't want that. No, we couldn't, no. couldn't possibly use those kinds of skills in biomedicine. Uh, this is an analytical science. But I want to ask you about your conflict of interest paper. I think recently you were looking at um, some of the stuff around uh, the use of tissue plasminogen activator uh, for yeah. stroke. And and you find that this is an issue that is very divisive. Neurologists often feel very strong. Um, uh, emergency medicine doctors who are often in the position because they fall within that, you know, four and a half to six hour time window or maybe three hour to six hour time window, they're often in the position to make the call about the administration of, of thrombolytics. Uh, they often have a slightly different attitude on this topic. Would you say that's fair to say? Absolutely. I mean, really couldn't have two more diverse camps of people regarding TPA for acute ischemic stroke management. And, and what, what are you, what's your thoughts on this TPA for acute ischemic stroke? And what do you think this conflict of interest um, uh, research that you've done in this space shows? You know, so what, what should the listener know if the listener knows little about the topic? Yeah, so, you know, I think when it comes to TPA, there's, a, I think there's like 10 or so RCTs that everyone usually cites. And if you're on Twitter, they'll usually have the columns where it shows like, you know, the odds ratio and they'll be in green, yellow, um, or red if there was right. an outcome or not. And right. People will kind of use that. Um, I think, you know, whether or not TPA actually is effective in improving neurological outcomes, so by the modified Rankin scale, and there's a lot of debate on how that is, um, how it's categorized in an ordinal way in a lot of these studies as opposed to continuous, um, and if the ordinal categorization of it is actually meaningful. Right, right. Um, you know, in my limited experience, in Cleveland, at least, there haven't I, when I've been on shift, I haven't had that many people on which their last known well was within six hours. Right. Because usually they woke up like that and then they yeah. came to the emergency department. Right. Right. Um. So I feel like the, 
the population that would most benefit from it, you know, probably doesn't always present um, when they need to present. However, the American Heart Association, American Stroke Association, or the AHA and ASA, um, their 2018 guidelines give the use of TPA and acute ischemic stroke, assuming no contraindications, um, grade A evidence um, for within three hours, and I believe grade B evidence um, up to 4.5 hours. Mm-hmm. Whereas the American College of Emergency Physicians give both grade B evidence as of their 2015. Um, clinical policy report. And so a lot of emergency medicine providers have opined that conflicts of interest were the driver for it. There was a BMJ article before the open payments database became live in 2013, I think. Um, They had mentioned that there was influence of um, Genentech Mm -hmm. in the earlier AHA and ASA guidelines. And so when we were looking through it, no one had actually looked at the open payments database to see if people who are on these clinical policy guidelines, um, did they have any conflicts before or after publication of the guidelines for both emergency doctors and, you know, neurologists, cardiologists, neurosurgeons. Um, and, and, you know, we really were specific with our analysis and, you know, pretty generous in the sense that we only defined a conflict of interest as $5,000 aggregate payment in a year directly related to TPA or endovascular intervention. Oh, wow. That was so, non-feed and beverage. I see. Well, so, and that's that's very stringent. So it's not even just a company that manufactures those products giving $5,000. The payment has to be directly related to that act. Yeah, and it has to be over $5,000. If we would have included consulting or honoraria from like $1,000 to $4,999, it would have gone up immensely. I see. Um, But in our protocol that we did before we actually started the study, we wanted to characterize it to $5,000 so people weren't saying we were like cherry picking. Um, And so we stuck to our protocol. You did a protocol before you started this study. Is that a novel innovation that you thought of there or uh, what's up with that? Yeah, so um, Dr. Rick Pescatori, he's an emergency physician in New Jersey. We um, we both decided that we were going to create basically a little protocol that says, you know, this is our question, this is the database, these are the analyses that we're going to use, um, and this is how we're going to characterize conflict of interest beforehand. It's, you know, honestly, it was very tempting, if I'm being honest with you, to want to change that and include anything below 5,000 mm-hmm. because then our results would have jumped out that much more. Um but I don't think either of us could have honestly have actually done that. And I think we had pretty good data anyway of course, um, yeah. when we saw what it was. And, and, and what did you find? Yeah, so, we, so one of the things we looked at was what was the rate of conflict of interest before and after, as I mentioned. And so for emergency medicine, so for American College of Emergency, emergency Medicine Clinical Guidelines and the AAEM, it's, wow, this is going to be embarrassing. I hope no one in emergency medicine is listening to this. I don't know what they stand for. It's like the academic... Associate, uh, Academic Association of Emergency Medicine, I think. And and then we also looked at the AHA and ASA guidelines. And so what we found is for emergency medicine, there was 0% of people on those clinical guidelines committees who had conflicts of interest before or after um, those guidelines were published. And that was in 2015. So we were able to look at 2014, 2013, um, and then 2016, 2017. And 2018 hasn't been released yet. When we looked at the AHA and ASA guidelines, I believe it was in 2013 um, before they were republished in 2018. And what we found is there was a 300% increase in people who were then paid um, by industry 
for consulting. This wasn't just research, it was like consulting honoraria education for TPA and endovascular management after the publication of the guidelines. And I think the most interesting part of the paper was that 9%, I think, of the people on the AHA and ASA guidelines um, were directly part of Genentech Speakers Bureau. Hmm, I see. So so what you're, what you're saying is that one set of guidelines is a bit exuberant about TPA. Another set of guidelines is a bit circumspect. It yeah. just so happens to be the case that the guidelines that is a bit exuberant has a number of panelists who later receive payments from the maker of the product that they endorsed who often receive those payments for speaking about said product. Is that what you're saying? Right, exactly. And so, you know, we're very careful to say that, you know, correlation isn't causation. Of course not. Of course not. It's a total coincidence, Joshua. Total (laughs) coincidence. (laughs) Exactly. And so I I think it really just emphasizes to me that if you look at the people who are going to be on a committee, I mean, you can't obviously forecast what's going to happen afterwards. But if you look at the people who are going to be on a committee, you can look at their history. And if they do have pertinent financial conflicts of interest with the guidelines, I I really see no reason for them to be on the guidelines because I think if we're both honest, and I know a lot of people are going to probably say I'm arrogant for saying this, medicine isn't rocket science, right? And I mean, a lot of people at some really good institutions, any institutions can read a research paper or they know their field pretty well. And I think you can get people who don't have financial conflicts of interest to interpret the papers that are brought before them. And then, you know, if you select some people that can't interpret the papers and find some other neurologists or cardiologists who can interpret the papers that don't have conflicts of interest. And I think that, you know, that there was an investigative piece that looked at the ASAP guidelines from 2013. And when they, we gave it grade A evidence for three hours, but at that time, um, the American Association of Neurology also was a signatory on the document. And it was after that that ASEP required no one to have conflicts of interest um, to be on a clinical policy guideline. And so I think it's possible um, to do that. And I, I don't really buy the argument that people who have conflicts are necessarily more knowledgeable about a topic. Yeah, I, I think that that's a, that is an argument that gets tossed out in this space is, oh, well, the reason that they're the ones conflicted, not others, is that they are the experts on the topic. And I think I agree with you 100% that, you know, these. this is a handful of studies that we all agree. These are the studies that should shape this decision. There are a lot of smart people in medicine who can read that, many of whom have no ties to the makers of these uh, lytics. And there's no reason why that they should not solely comprise the voting members. And then I say, like, look, no one will even stop, like, if you wanted to have a sort of a setting where a panel of non-conflicted people solicits the input of conflicted people and hears their testimony, and then, okay, then you guys, thank you, we've solicited your testimony. Now we're going to have our internal deliberation. That's also quite reasonable. Um, you know, there's no reason to exclude them from a discussion, but to give them the voting power on these kind of guidelines, I think that's a problematic scenario. And it's a scenario that we tolerate in biomedicine, but would we be comfortable with that in other situations where evidence that can be interpreted in different ways is you know, judged? For instance, in a court of law, would we be comfortable with judges receiving considerable financial remuneration from defense attorneys and then deciding on the sentencing of those um, defendants? Uh, I think many of us would find that relationship you know, intensely problematic. And, you know, I always speculate that the reason why 
in biomedicine, some of these relationships are not seen as problematic or there's little enthusiasm for curtailing them is in part because in contrast with other fields, doctors have historically enjoyed a very high rate of trust. It's a very venerable and respected profession. And because we're so respected, people think that simply because something has been this way, it's probably okay. Um, It's not problematic. But a similar field that isn't respected or trusted, like politicians, they would be crucified for some of these kinds of relationships. Absolutely. And You know, with the recent ProPublica and New York Times investigative pieces that came out last fall with, I think, Memorial Sloan Kettering or something like that, like Hmm. he was on a cancer doctor who had like numerous financial conflicts of interest and didn't report any of them in any other RCTs and publications. And if you look at the literature, since there's a lot of literature on financial conflicts of interest, there's a ton that show, and every specialty seems to have one, a paper or two on it showing that there's inconsistency um, with people who worked for a company on a device and then didn't report they got money um, from that company for that device. And so I think we, you know, it's not that we can't trust doctors. I think it's just, you know, honestly, having recently submitted a god-awful amount of publications, it's just, it's really, the the submission process for publications, I think, is extremely onerous. Oh, it's it's a lot of these places. Terrible, terrible. And when when you're going through it, you just want to kind of click yes, yes, or no, 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 and kind of get your way through it. And so I think that is probably part of a driver is all the paperwork associated with needing to, you know, submit a research letter, for example. It's Um, uh, alarm fatigue in many ways. I mean, there's just so many boxes, so much reformatting, so much. And then you submit it all, and then you get this thing in your inbox saying, oh, you didn't didn't put your tables in a separate Word document. Like, oh, my God, I got to go back and do this again, re-upload. Wait for it to convert to PDF. You know how many life years I've lost waiting for it to convert to PDF, (laughs) Joshua? So many life years. I watch HGTV while it's doing that. So. <laughs> House Hunters International? Which one? What's your yep. choice? Oh, okay. That's what I watch. Um, brother versus Brother. Mm. <laughs> Property Brothers. They're good. Like they're, they're a very charismatic yeah. duo, those two. They are. <laughs> but let's shift gears a little bit and talk about this ambulance paper. Yeah. We actually were tweeting about this. Um, in January, and there was an article that was published in Annals of Emergency Medicine. It's one of our major um, emergency medicine peer-reviewed journals, and it was called, Is Use of Warning Lights and Sirens Associated with Increased Risk of Ambulance Crashes? A Contemporary Analysis of the National EMS Information System Data or Nemesis. <clears throat> and so, you know, one of the things that they found is they looked at something like 19 million um, 911 responses, which is just a ton. Yep. And uh, they found that they wanted to know what was the crash rate for ambulance drivers driving to a scene. Mm-hmm. And then after they picked up the patient, they were transporting the patient. And they wanted to know what the rate was without lights and sirens and with lights and sirens. And so what they found is that when ambulance are going to a scene, the response phase crash rate was 4.6 crashes out of 100,000 mm-hmm. um, rides for those without lights and sirens compared to those with lights and sirens that had 5.4 crashes out of 100,000. And their adjusted odds ratio was 1.5, and it was confidence interval 1.2 to 1.9. So they say that's significant. I think you can maybe debate with 19 million cases of 5.4 and you know versus 4.6 is 
meaningfully or is actually meaningful in terms of right right we're talking about one in a hundred thousand um so okay so so i guess just to say if this is a fair summary um what you're saying is that question one on the way to pick up the patient if you have your lights and sirens on you have a statistically significant clinical question mark increase in rates of of accident from something like four per 100,000 to five per 100,000, about one right. per 100,000. Very modest right. on the way there. Okay, what about right. on the way back? So on the way back, it was more. And so if you didn't have lights and sirens on, it was seven out of 100,000 compared to if you did have lights and sirens, it was uh, roughly 17 of 100,000 with an adjusted odds ratio of 2.9. So there were more um, crashes that occurred that were significant in that response. But you know, one of the mm-hmm. comments you made on Twitter, I thought was, and what I was thinking too, is that when you're coming back from picking up a patient, turning on lights and sirens is not a random event. Of course, yeah, right, right, yeah. And there's no data, and, they're, and they actually have a really good table one that they should be commended for, where they actually say all the data elements that are used in the Nemesis database, which a lot of these big um, oh, administrative they, claims databases don't use that often. They never tell you. They never tell you what covariates they have, right? These people no. tell you, so give them a, you, props for that, yes. So they actually tell you, and I was I actually thought that was one of the best parts of the paper. But interestingly enough, and you know, this is a, they don't mention this as a limitation of the paper, and it's not their fault for not using it because it's not in the data, but there's nothing about patient severity right. in this paper, and you would have to think that something with patient severity would change the way a person drives, whether they're going to put on lights and sirens. I can tell you anecdotally, in November, I had two asthma exacerbations, mm-hmm. and they were in different states when I was interviewing, ironically, wow. yeah. um, in cold, cold states. Mm-hmm. And um, I had to actually use an ambulance. And for each ambulance ride, you know, I was stable, um, and they didn't use lights and sirens. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. So I would have to wonder, you know, for those specific drivers, you know, someone who is fairly anxious, who has, you know, increased rate of breathing, feels like they're going to pass out, has a history of asthma, and they felt pretty calm, what would have gotten them to actually turn on lights and sirens then, right? right. And how would that have changed how they were driving? Right. And and so one imagines that these things are linked, that um, if you're in distress, if they're panicked, if they're nervous, one of them's in the back with you, one's in the front, that's more likely to use lights and sirens. And then that person in the front is wants to get there fast. They may be driving more erratic. And these things are all linked. And so it's not the causal use of lights and sirens any more than it is the kind of study that says people who carry cigarette lighters get more lung cancer than people who don't carry cigarette lighters. And it's certainly not the lighter that's giving you lung cancer from keeping in your pocket. Um, right. It's, it's one of those kinds of things. And, you know, there are a couple of things when I read that paper that stuck out to me. One is on the way there, the use of lights and sirens. Again, I think the, the real challenge here is what's the counterfactual? You, you, you don't use lights and sirens in a random way. You use it if you're on the way there. When are you going to use it? If it's 11 a.m. in Portland on a weekday, there's not going to be much traffic. You probably don't need it. You can probably get there pretty quick. Um, and when you do uh, use it, it's probably at a time where traffic is heavier because you, you want to get around something, right. get over a bridge. Or it's during, you know, for us, traffic's always worse during the school year than not in the school year. Um, you know, a Tuesday through Thursday is worse than Monday and Friday. You know, there are all these kind of traffic patterns to, you know, when you might want to use lights and sirens, you want to get there. Also, what you've heard over the radio about what, what might be going on might be something that makes you put your foot on the gas. On the way back, 
certainly the clinical situation in the back has got to affect the guy or gal in the front driving. Um, it's, it, it, it has to. And this is what I thought was the most interesting. They say, so why is it on the way there? It's so modest, the increase. On the way back, it's so big. And they say that the explanation is on the way there, there are two people in the front seat. And on the way back, there's just one person in the front seat. And so the theory is that when there are two people in the front seat, the passenger can kind of help the driver. Hey, look out over there. Look out over there. And I say, this is, a, this is an interesting story they're telling. And it's something that's not consistent with any experience driving I've ever had. <laughs> I was about to say, I don't think I've ever had a humble passenger. Yeah, I'm like, sit back and shut up. And I'm the one driving. And I don't want to hear a word out of you. You know, that's my experience. And then when the passenger leans forward and wants to look I say you don't look I'm the one looking you don't have to look you're getting your head in my way <laughs> I'm like exactly. this is this is a magic passenger that's helping the driver I've never heard of such a thing and <laughs> but yet they try to sell that and you know I think you know what you're saying is corroborated in table three too yeah. and so they they report the you know the absolute number of um, full lights and sirens and no lights and sirens and you can see out of that 19 million 14 million used full lights and sirens driving to a scene. Mm -hmm. So most of the drives to a scene, they use lights and sirens. On the way back, 3 million used full lights and sirens mm -hmm. as opposed to 10 million that didn't. So that tells me there must be something with that 3 million right. instead of that 10 million that was why they turned on those lights and sirens because that's a significant difference right there. Absolutely. And um, I hope to put this out, but we did this in my, uh, the, you know, I'm teaching this two-week class now. We do about 30 hours a week of discussion of journal articles over two weeks, inspired by Adam Sifu's class that I took when I was a student. And um, one of the papers we read was this paper. One of the people in the class was um, somebody who had spent time working in EMS. And they were talking about, like, you know, what are they taught about lights and sirens and what are the, the principles? And I guess I would say it made me think about, like, what is the policy implication of this paper? And, exactly. and, and could it be tested in a randomized fashion? And, and I think the policy implication is that in one arm, you would tell drivers, use lights and sirens kind of as best you believe, as best you need, at, at your discretion. In the other arm, I think you give them this information where you tell them that, you know, prior studies have shown lights of sirens are only associated with very modest time savings, and new studies show that there's this risk of accident. We didn't talk about, but actually, when they define it as accident, it's accident that leads to a significant delay. It's not just any fender bender, you know, it's so it's, right. it's kind of perhaps an insensitive definition of accident. But you give them this information, you tell them this, and you say, okay, be prudent. Really don't use this unless you absolutely need to. And you're doing that a random randomized cluster randomized trial and you ask in the group that gets the advice be prudent versus the group that gets the advice do what you need to do um, is there a difference in time to the hospital difference in patient outcomes difference in accidents and my bet is you do a cluster randomized trial with a quarter million data points and you're going to find that the that telling people to be prudent has no benefit and maybe loses a few minutes that's my gut feeling but i don't know that for sure but i think that's the oh, kind of question sure. that you know that this kind of paper lends itself to and you know the other thing is is having you know last year my research year working with similar databases such as the nationwide emergency department sample or neds which is kind of similar to this mm -hmm. except you know, if you look at like eight years, there's like 300 million visits. I mean, you could pretty much find anything significant. And so you really have to tease out, you know, if we would have actually had this and that kind of study that you just mentioned, and we had these similar rates, would those confidence intervals gone over one? And, you know, my, I would probably think so. But since you have, 
you know, 19 million events here. I'm just not exactly sure how significant this actually is, given how many data points there are. Yeah, I think you, you're, the point you're making, which I think is such an astute point, which is that big data is a double-edged sword. On the one hand, you have a lot of data, and it's perhaps broadly representative. On the other hand, different, almost any two variables can have a P less than 0.05, because there's so much data. Confidence intervals are so tight. You can find such slivers of difference between two things that are, quote, statistically significant. I think the person who kind of talked about this best is John in that paper, administrative data, is it useful and is it actionable in JAMA, which really drove home the point that a lot of these administrative data sets are likely spurious, but that doesn't stop the major medical journals from being deeply seduced by them and just love publishing them over and over again. Oh, absolutely. And I think for, you know, for this paper, I don't think that the author's intent at all was a health policy one, and I don't think on this kind of database you could make any health policy out of it, but the way that Twitter was responding to it was, oh, see, we shouldn't be using lights and sirens. And that's, you know, that's when I get a little bit concerned a lot about a lot of these, you know, if they're using like Medicare databases, which we know there's a whole bunch of fun stuff in the fall and the winter with the Medicare database or, you know, any of these other administrative claims databases. I mean, anyone can really find anything with them, we can find significance, and then you'll have different groups at different hospitals that don't find significance or do find significance. And I'm actually starting to kind of, you know, in my naivety probably, starting to kind of question what benefit is there um, to a lot of these studies. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm guilty as anyone in doing them, but I'm starting to kind of question the value that I'm putting out there. Oh, I I, I don't know how, I, I mean, I, I, I uh, agree with you so much. I mean, every, Every year or two, every few months, uh, you know, some period of time, I stop and I think like the question one, you know, is everything we're doing like really as good as we possibly could do it? That's one. But then two, the meta question of like, is doing this as good as we possibly can do it? Is that valuable? Is that helpful? Is it possibly even harmful in a way we don't anticipate? Is this a net service or is a net disservice? Are we better off? Am I better off just packing up and just seeing patients, you know, being a doctor? Would that be a better use of my time? I think, you know, more of us should sort of struggle with that question because um, because as I, I think Twitter allows a window into one thing, which is how people actually interpret and take away the take-home points of studies. And I think it's really fascinating. And you're right, on Twitter you see a study like this and one of the take-home points is, boy, I best not use lights and sirens. I best avoid it at all costs. And then the question is, well, that is a testable hypothesis that one could test. Um, another example I saw was the you know, the Ziad Obermeyer paper about um, we built a, a machine learning made a predictive model of death. And actually we're not yeah. able to predict who will die very well. And we're not able to come up with a model that'll say this person will die for sure so they don't need any medical care. And then people interpreted that study to mean this study shows there is no waste in end of life care. And I was like, oh boy, it shows no <laughs> such thing. It shows that yeah. machine learning when trained on a Medicare data set with Medicare administrative codes limited by that cannot come up with a model that predicts who will die in the next year, but it tells you nothing about whether or not any of their care is valuable on average or harmful on average, whether or not they lived or whether or not they died. It has nothing to do with waste at all. It's completely tangential, but yet it's spun in this way. Um, incredibly misleading. And you know what? I think you're right. And, you know, for the listeners, JAMA Open and JAMA, I think in no, like September and December, I want to say, 
published two papers with almost the exact same title on the hospital readmissions reduction program. Oh, yeah. Um, looking at outcomes, I think I want to say for those admitted with acute myocardial infarction, pneumonia, and heart failure. Yeah. I think yeah. If that's right. Yeah. And they, you know, they kind of found exactly divergent mm-hmm. results on the efficacy of this, um, re- um, you know, this program. And, you know, people started, you know, one of the authors started saying, you know, oh, well, you didn't share your code. And then the other authors of the other paper started saying, well, you didn't share your code either. And, you know, I think ever since then, for better or worse, and again, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a trainee, I'm naive too, and, you know, it's kind of produced this nihilism almost, and, you know, I, you know, want to have a research-based career, and, you know, kind of seeing a lot of stuff like this being published in these high-impact journals, and using the kind of data that I would want to use one day, it's kind of the research that I'm interested in, and kind of questioning its value now, and kind of questioning its meaning. Um, I definitely have had a lot of conversations with a couple of close friends who are also interested in research on, you know, what is what is the best way to use one's time to make the most possible impact? And I'm not really sure what the answer to that question is yet. I, um, you know, I, I guess I, I've been doing it a little bit longer than you, and I struggle yeah. with all the same questions. I mean, the questions you have to always ask, I think, in research for anybody are one, um, is it true? Two, is it useful? Three, is it the best thing you can be doing with your time? And we have to ask ourselves that like all the time. And, and, and if it's ever not true, oh no, I don't want to see it. If it's ever not useful but true, okay, maybe there's a role for not a true but not useful. I mean, that's to be fair, that's, you never know. Maybe it's useful down the road. Um, and if it's not the best use of your time, one should reevaluate. And I think I struggle with that. Um, I struggle with, at least I try to ask myself that all the time. And I try to say no to lots of projects that, uh, you know, people want to foist on me um, uh, that I think are probably not true or certainly not useful, even if they are true. Try to budget. You know, we all have very limited time. I think we feel, you know, we have very limited limited time. And even though our careers are 20, 30 years in, in the grand scheme of things, that's a very short period of time to to kind of do something that you think is really meaningful and you don't want to squander it. No, I agree. And I think that at least what I've been coming to terms with a little bit more with research and why I keep on picking up projects is really the community that you form and the people that you work with. If you can work with, you know, a handful of people and you're all passionate about the same thing. And so for me, it's been, you know, and they're on Twitter, Dr. Pescatore, Dr. Ali Raja, um, Alex Zutlin, one of the kids we've been, or one of the medical students we've been working with at University of Michigan on a paper that we'll hopefully hear something back on soon. <laughs> and, you know, I think really kind of working with those people how cool they are, how much I'm learning from them, and kind of the relationships that I've been developing. I've been finding that that's probably the most meaning I've been getting out of a lot of these projects, even though I know probably quite a few of them won't be cited, won't be highly cited, maybe aren't of high value. So, I think um, you know you you put it so well that it's it's at, at the end of the day it's it's kind of this this human pursuit, and that's that's really half of the value. Yeah. Um, I know our time is very short today. Uh, I'm, I'm very grateful for you to come on this podcast. I think um, listeners should follow you on Twitter. I think you, you ask very good questions. You're in failingly polite, um, but you're very thoughtful. I definitely see your theology background in, in your thoughts. Um, I think we, we definitely need more of that in biomedicine. Uh, that's a great strength. Um, and when you couple that with somebody who understands how the sausage is made with data analysis, I think, um, you know, 
I, I, I look forward to seeing you know what's going to happen in your career uh, with, uh, with a lot of optimism. Um, I expect great things. Um, and I, I want to thank you, Joshua Niferatos, for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And uh, to all the listeners who are listening to this, I apologize for any word vomit that I had oh, no. uh, in this podcast. Uh, we will have you back to discuss more papers from EM um, and awesome. uh, hopefully at a longer time. Sounds good. Have a good one. You too. You've been listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this podcast and you like this episode, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a comment. If you want to give us feedback, you can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session, or you can send an email to plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. We like to know what you're thinking. What could be be better? What topics could we cover? Um, how can we improve? Finally, Plenary Session owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley. <laughs>